Gospel, we're looking at Luke chapter 12, beginning in 13, and we're going to read down to verse 21, the parable of the rich fool, as you'll find it titled in your copy of Scripture. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find this on page 871, Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. And again, let me just very briefly pray for us as we come to the ministry of the preaching of God's Word this morning. Father in heaven, would you please bless the preaching of your word? We only have so many days. We only get to hear so many sermons. Our God, we acknowledge that our lives are but a breath, and that if you will, we will live and do this or that. We do not know what a day may bring, and so, our Father, would you please add your richest uh, gospel blessings to the preaching of the word for the eternal well-being of our souls this morning. Would you change us? Please accomplish your everlasting purposes as you have promised to do. And we pray that this would be unto our redemption and sanctification even now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. Remember, Jesus has been uh, debating with the Pharisees and the lawyers. A great crowd has gathered around him. And most recently, he has instructed his disciples to beware of hypocrisy, not to fear men, but to fear God, who can cast both soul and body into hell. And then not to be afraid, because God cares about those he has redeemed Uh, more than we could ever imagine. And so Jesus is out in public instructing his disciples. A great crowd is gathered around. And now Luke records for us these words. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, larger ones. It's the same word, sorry. Build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God indoors forever. When I was a very young Christian, I worked at a restaurant, and on one occasion, uh, I met an older couple who began to strike up conversation with me about whether I was in school or not, and, and I told them I was beginning to take courses in seminary, and they said, oh, you're studying for ministry, and they asked me what denomination I was in, and I said, well, I'm Presbyterian, and they said, oh, we're Presbyterian, and I thought, wow, marvelous, what a coincidence, and um, in the course of our conversation, they began to tell me, uh, the man in specific began to tell me his conversion experience. He was probably um, in his late 70s, perhaps early 80s when I met him. His name was Joe Estes, 
And Joe said to me, I spent, this is our first, first meeting. Joe said, I spent the better part of my life making an enormous amount of money playing the bulls and the bears. At that time, I'm not sure I knew what the bulls and the bears were. I was pretty young, and I think I even asked him, and he gave me a little lesson on investment. I clearly was not playing the bulls and the bears, <laughs> making two-something an hour in a restaurant. And, uh, and uh, Joe said, I, I heard the gospel from a Sunday school teacher, and I realized that I had wasted my entire life just laying up for myself. And we went on and had sweet fellowship. A few weeks later, the president of my seminary told me that Joe had paid off all of my yearly tuition and that he had put extra money in for me to get whatever books I needed. This only happened once. (laughs) You know me, I was young. I'm like, maybe this will happen again. I'm excited about going to work. I don't know who I'm going to meet. Um, It was really a beautiful account. Joe and his wife, Ruby, came to hear me preach my first sermon in 2005. Um, And then he passed away. And And I am, as sure as I can be, sure that he is in glory right now with Christ. Um, Now, that's a rare story. That doesn't happen a lot. Uh, Most people who spend their life laying up for themselves die doing the same thing that they've lived for. And here we have an account where Jesus is confronted by a man who has a covetous heart. Jesus, remember, is teaching his disciples these precious truths of the kingdom. And he is, he is telling them not to be afraid of men, to, to boldly make him known, to, to be a faithful disciple, to follow him faithfully, to know that God is going to care for them and protect them no matter what, that no one can do anything even if they kill them. And, and, and the crowds, remember Luke says, they're pressing in on him. And, and notice that... that Luke says in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, if if you're reading this carefully, that should strike you as strange. That should be the last thing that you hear anyone saying at this moment when Jesus is teaching such amazing eternal truths to his disciples publicly. Don't fear men, fear God. Trust the God that cares about you more than the sparrows. Teacher, I want some of the inheritance. Tell my brother to give it to me. That is going to serve as a platform for some of the greatest teaching that uh, Jesus ever gives us on greed and covetousness and money and the relationship between our lives to money and our lives to God. And the rest of Luke's gospel actually is going to have some of the greatest teaching on greed and covetousness and money and all of those issues that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. I've always found it fascinating that the, the gospel record in which you find the most about money is the one written by a doctor. I've not read that anywhere. I, I've wondered, and I, I thought about this. I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe doctors didn't make what they make today before the Affordable Care Act. And uh, they still make a lot. Maybe, maybe, maybe doctors weren't really what they are now. But remember, Luke told us that there was a woman with a flow of blood who had spent all that she had on doctors and was no better. And, and Luke has this keen eye to the, the uncrossable chasm between loving money and loving God. 
that irreconcilable relationship. And the one who himself probably had quite a lot of money, probably funded the Apostle Paul's uh, missionary journeys in the book of Acts, at least in part, is the man who gives us the most about the dangers of possessions and money and the evil of greed and covetousness in everyone's heart. Now, this morning, we're going to consider two things as we look at this, because this man's account is going to uh, be the platform for Jesus giving us the parable of the rich fool. All of that is going to go together. And we're going to consider these two things. First, the revealing question, and then we're going to consider the sobering story, the revealing question and the sobering story. Well, notice in verse 13, this man has cried out to Jesus. We don't know anything about this man, and there's no reason we should think this is a rich man. In fact, There is probably every reason to think that this man hasn't been doing so well in life financially. And he thinks, well, you know, my father's died and my brother has the inheritance. He ought to be dividing it. We don't know whether that was what should have been as a just principle. It could have been that the brother was the older brother and that by biblical right in the old covenant law, he received the inheritance and the larger part of it. And this man... Uh, is has an illegitimate concern. We don't know. We, we, we can assume, I think, that this man is not as well off as we might think he was, and we ought to think that this man has a heart full of greed. Now, before I say anything else this morning, I want to say this. Greed is an equal opportunity occupant. Greed will occupy anyone's heart. It doesn't matter if you're rich, filthy rich. It doesn't matter if you are extremely poor. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter what stage of life. It doesn't matter if you have millions. It doesn't matter if you are making minimum wage. Greed will enter anyone's heart. Greed will live in anyone's heart. Greed will grow in anyone's heart. Greed will fester in anyone's heart. Um, You know, it's interesting. Tim Keller has pointed this out, and I think very helpfully. Jesus talked about money more than any other single subject except maybe himself. So we tend to think, well, you know, sexual sin, that's the big one, and it is big. Jesus talks about the dangers of money constantly in Scripture. He doesn't talk about good stewardship principles constantly. That may hit your ear wrong. He talks about the dangers of the love of money constantly. The soul-damning danger of greed and covetousness. Um, Keller goes on to point out how prominent this is in Luke. He says, Jesus talks about wealth and possessions and justice and mercy and money constantly. Most of Luke 12, this chapter talks about it. Most of Luke 16 is about it. Keller says, back in Luke 3, John the Baptist was asked, what does it look like if I repent? And he tells the people, don't be greedy. Be content with your wages. When the Pharisees are being denounced by Jesus in Luke 16, they're called lovers of money. When Zacchaeus' life is completely transformed in Luke 19... He immediately gives away 50% of his wealth. Luke 11, the previous chapter, is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus ever explicitly affirms the tithe principle. 11, listen to this, 11 out of 39 parables that Jesus told are directly about money and what we should do with our money. So this man comes to Jesus, and I think he asked the question because of what he heard Jesus say to the Pharisees 
when he told them they tithed mint and, and uh, ruse and all those small things, but they, they, they didn't have hearts of mercy and kindness. They weren't generous. They weren't, they weren't giving people. And he heard that, and so that's why he cries out to Jesus. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, it's interesting. The question is telling. The man is not interested in justice for others. He's interested about what he's going to get. He is driven by self-interest and self-focus. And, um, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it? This man hears Jesus teach these perfect heavenly truths. And he does what so many people do when they hear a sermon. Oh, I really wish so-and-so was here to hear this. I really wish my brother was here right now. Because then, then you, Jesus, you wouldn't have to tell him to divide it with me. He would hear you, and he would do that. He'd do what was right to me. Um, that man is not thinking, what is Jesus' word saying to me? He's thinking, how should this apply to others with respect to me. Now, um, one writer, uh, old writer, Frederick Lange, said, when Jesus was speaking of heavenly things, this man had been brooding over earthly things. I want you to think about this. How many times are we, and, and I am guilty of this, sitting there listening to a sermon, listening to something, and we're thinking about where we're going to go eat or what we're going to do, or how much we can't wait to be out with these people doing this. While Jesus is talking about heavenly things, this man is brooding over earthly things. It's a great warning to us as we listen to God's word. Um, There's no, again, intimation that this man was rich, and yet greed had consumed his heart, and so Jesus does not entertain this man. Now, it's very interesting, because no one is as just as Jesus. I mean, this is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the lawgiver. This is the judge over all the earth. This is the one that Solomon's wisdom that was derivative wisdom was just a little tiny nothing picture of. The wisdom of Jesus, infinite wisdom. This is the one who in chapter 11 called himself the wisdom of God. When he's disputing with the Pharisees, he says, the wisdom of God says, speaking about himself. And yet he doesn't entertain that man's request because he sees through it and he sees that that man is driven by greed and covetousness. Even in his attempt at discerning principles of justice. And so Jesus says to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Phil Riken has this great meditation on this because... There's a lot of pressure, especially for spiritual leaders, to be everything and to do everything and to solve everyone's problems. Listen to this. Phil Reichen said Jesus refused to get involved. In fact, he gave the man an apparent brush off, saying with obvious disapproval, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Jesus was clear about his calling. One day he would stand in judgment over every, everyone for everything. But the day for judgment had yet, not yet come, and in his earthly ministry, it was not his calling To resolve this dispute, Israel had a legal system for settling small claims. Jesus had come to seek and to save the lost. So you see what Jesus is doing here is even in not answering this man because of this man's sinful motives, he is putting in the driver's seat what is most important. He is essentially saying to the man, 
The thing that you're missing, the thing for which I came, the reason I'm here is not to settle your disputes so you can live with a greedy, covetous heart and feel like you got your portion here now. The reason I'm here is so that I would be the portion of your soul, so that you would have salvation, so that you would know who I am and that you would have all the benefits of redemption and that you would treasure me over everything. It's very interesting, and and I might have missed this years ago, and yet in the man's question... He says to Jesus, tell my brother to divide, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now that word uh, is used in the same chapter, later on in this chapter, when Jesus says, and I'll read it to you, Jesus says that he did not come to bring peace, verse 51, No, I tell you, I came to bring division. Now, we've talked about that. That's a hard verse. Did not come to bring peace. I came to bring division. Jesus brings division by redeeming out of the world. When he redeems by his grace, the hostility and the enmity of the world rises. And what I think Jesus is essentially saying by not answering this man who's asking him to divide the inheritance is he's saying, oh, no, you need to learn about the division of redemption and why I came into this world, and you need to experience that division in your own life. You need to be separated out of this world. Your heart needs to be freed from the love of this world. And so what does Jesus do? He takes opportunity to warn this man. It seems almost harsh, doesn't it? This man has what seems to be a legitimate burden. He seems to have a legitimate concern. He seems to have been ripped off by his brother. Shouldn't the perfectly righteous Jesus, the just Savior, shouldn't he care about that? And notice what Jesus says. There is something greater you should care about. He said now to the whole crowd, and I love that. Jesus is that individual who, when you're having a conversation with them personally and others are kind of around, they start talking louder so everybody can hear them. He, he really is. This everywhere. Having this conversation with this man. So now he says to them, take heed. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Um, I thought this was really interesting. You know, Tim Keller points out that when, when people are coming to Jesus with wrong desires, requests, He's, he's kind of like a friend who interrupts and says, enough about you, let's talk about me. I want you to think about that. Enough about you, Jesus says. Let's, let's think about me. Let's talk about me. Let's talk about why I am what you should be aiming for. Let's talk about why I should be the desire of your soul. Let's talk about why you should find me, the infinite God, in the flesh, the Redeemer, to be the best portion of your soul. Uh, Jesus is doing that to the crowds. He's saying to them, listen, beware of covetousness. Um, When I was an intern in Philadelphia, one of the interns preached a sermon on James, where James rails against the rich. And he says... uh, Lament and mourn and weep, you rich, for your riches are, are coming to nothing. And, and 
you know, it's scathing. And, and my friend who was an intern with me preached on that, and I remember thinking, oh boy, here we go. Let's see how, how this one goes over. And he said to the congregation, now all of us in here are rich by the world's standards. And I remember thinking, I'm not rich. <laughs> we are all rich by the world's standards, every one of us. And every one of us has the propensity to allow covetousness and greed to just consume us. Um, remember, you don't have to be rich. By, by the richest standards to have a heart full of greed. Um, when I was a kid, I remember there was a show on TV, Lifestyle of the Rich and Famous, Robin Leach. I loved it because he was British and you know everybody had gaudy houses and jaguars that are now worth nothing. Really, you could buy one for nothing. <laughs> and everybody had ugly chandeliers. And, but that was, that was it. That was, this is what you could be. This is the American dream. You can have it. You can have it. And Jesus says, oh my, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. Now, you would think just saying that would be enough. I would think that. Every week we read uh, verses on giving in our order of service. One of the reasons we do that is the hopes that God uses his word to stir up in your heart and my heart, a desire to give generously for the sake of his kingdom, lay up treasures in heaven. Um, And yet it's often not enough, is it? And so Jesus gives now a sobering story. Now he tells this story about a man. We don't know whether this was a man who had really lived. Presumably he had. There's lots of people like this man. Um, He was a farmer and he was more than that. He was a businessman. And Jesus, in this story, tells uh, these details. He says that the land of a rich man, he was already rich, his land yielded plentifully. Now, before we say anything else, Jesus is not condemning the increase of prosperity, de facto. He is not condemning that. He's not saying there was anything wrong with the land increasing plentifully. This man hadn't done anything to make that land increased plentifully. God had sent rain. The conditions had been right. God had caused a rich harvest to come up. And this man who was already wealthy by by God's providence outside of his own ingenuity or anything that he did increased abundantly. And, And that's how the story starts. And then Jesus tells us the rest of the story. And it's between verses 16 and 17 where there is the turn and you are to listen most carefully. So here's where you got to pay very close attention. Jesus now hones in on the inner life of this man who has just yielded abundantly. And he tells us a world of truths for our own souls and for eternity. Notice this. He gives us, and before I actually walk through this, let me tell you what he does. He gives us five descriptions about this man from this man's own inner thought life. Five things we can tell about this man, and and they've been set out in this way. Um, He was ungrateful. You you might say, well, how was he ungrateful? I I don't read that in the text. Well, he never thanked God for the increase. He never got on his knees and said, Lord, thank you for providing. He never once said, Lord, this is all yours. 
None of this could have happened apart from you. I can't make the rain come down. I can't make the grain grow. I can't keep the bugs off. I don't have, I, I cannot make this yield. You have done it all. It is all yours. He does not thank the Lord. He is completely ungrateful. Um, he thought to himself. Notice that. He turns inward. Riches increase. He sets his heart on them. He turns inward. Now I'm going to manage my life and my possessions. I went and counted through the personal pronouns used in just two verses in, in this little area, and it might be a good exercise for you to do to go through and, and count up, even in the English Bible, the first person personal pronouns. There were 10 in two verses. He thought to himself, he, he thought, what shall I do? I have nowhere to lay this up. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones. I will store my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, Ten times in two verses. That man is consumed with himself. And so we can say, secondly, he is not only ungrateful, he is selfish. He is selfish. Um, Phil Riken has this really amazing sermon on this where he goes through everything the man should have done, but everything he did instead. And it's absolutely brilliant. He goes through when the man should have thanked God. And then secondly here, he should have considered the needs of the poor. The first thing he says is, what shall I do? What am I going to do with all that I have for me? For me. It's all about him. Um, Phil said, he said he should have given his access to the poor. St. Augustine Early church theologian, listen to this, because this man will go on to resolve what he needs to do is build bigger barns and silos, and he needs to develop more, and he needs to tear down his old house and put up a new house so he can store all his goods. And, and Augustine said this, listen to this, this man didn't realize the bellies of the poor were safer storerooms than his barns. Augustine says what he was stowing away in those barns was probably even being stolen away by thieves. But if he stowed it away in the bellies of the poor, it would be surely digested on earth, but in heaven it would have been kept more safely. I love that. He should have been thinking about others. He should have been thinking about the kingdom of God. Remember the centurion who came to Jesus, who had the servant who was sick and who sent servants to Jesus and begged him to heal his servant and said, I'm not even worthy to come under your roof. And remember what the elders said when they pointed out the elders of the Jews went to Jesus. And the first thing they said about that man, because he was a generous and a kind hearted man was he loves our nation. He wasn't even a Jew. He has built us a synagogue. He cared about spiritual things. He cared about the worship of God. He thought he cared about the church of God. He cared about using his wealth to benefit the people of God. This man thinks about himself. He's a Jew. He is one of the people of God. He is a church member. This man is a member of the old covenant church, and he doesn't care about God or his people at all. Not at all. So he is ungrateful. He is selfish. He's anxious. Now, by the way, all of this is cutting to me. If it's cutting to you, I feel your pain. I do. All of us have too much greed, too much covetousness. You know, the Apostle Paul actually says, 
in Romans 7, it's one of the most striking statements in the Bible when he's moving into talk about indwelling sin and the relationship of the law to the believer before conversion and then after. Paul actually says, I would not have known covetousness if the law had said, you shall not covet. Apostle Paul is admitting that he at different times had a covetous heart. Yes, before conversion and maybe even possibly after it was a besetting sin that he was constantly seeking to mortify and doing a good job mortifying. Um, And yet, nevertheless, this man becomes anxious and he says, what shall I do? He's he's. He's worried about whether he's going to be able to come up with a plan so that the grain doesn't spoil and the corn doesn't spoil so that he can just please himself. And so his life now is taken away. You know, isn't that true? The more we get, the more our life is taken away. You know, everybody talks about this in nostalgic ways, but nobody really believes it because if they believed it, they would act on it. But we, we say, wasn't it wonderful before we had kids and we lived in that 800-square-foot house, you know, and, and everything was so simple and life was so much easier and now there's 50 million things pulling us in every di- direction. It's because we want more. It's because we want more. It's because we want to build bigger barns. And, and inevitably, it will take away the life of its owner. Possessions, greed... Striving after more always creates more anxiety. And so this man is anxious. This man is uh, not only selfish, he is indulgent. He indulges himself. There is an old Scottish uh, theologian named John McNeil who has a sermon on this. And it's called The Soul of the Rich Man Fed by Corn. It's a great title. The soul of a rich man fed by corn. He is just trying to please his own soul with possessions. He is just trying to consume for himself, right? I have nowhere to store my crops. I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say, soul, you have many ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. This is what life's about. Please yourself. That's what it's about. Um, Phil Riken says he looked ahead to the golden years of his retirement. He anticipated spending them in the pursuit of idle pleasure. If you don't like this, I'm sorry. This is what the Savior of the world says. We are not to look ahead to spend the end of our life just living in pleasure, ever. No one. It doesn't matter how much you've worked. It doesn't matter how diligent you've been. You don't get to quit the Christian life and start living for self. It's not saying retirement's sinful. It's saying retirement that is self-pleasing is sinful. Retirement that's about you and your pleasure is sinful and displeasing to God. Anna and I were reflecting on another elderly couple who ministered to us when we were younger Christians and a newly wed couple, Rebecca and Tommy Thompson, Thomas, I'm sorry, Rebecca Thomas in Greenville, South Carolina. And Rebecca would open her home every Sunday and all the time and would have Anna over all the time and Rebecca went to be with the Lord 
a number of years ago, and I only remember two things about Rebecca. Well, three, how sweet and godly she was. I remember that she loved gardening. She had these amazing gardens, and she would spend a lot of time in her gardens. And I remember how she was constantly serving others, constantly opening her home, constantly trying to encourage younger believers. She spent her life, not for herself, but to bless others. She was a saint indeed. Um, Jesus is teaching that here this man is just thinking about himself. Um, He is now, finally, and the worst description, he is presumptuous. Now, this may be the most indicting of all the things in Jesus' story. This man has so convinced himself that everything happening to him is for him and about him and about his home and about just his interest that he's convinced himself he's, he's just going to keep going on forever. Uh, there is a story. It is often falsely attributed to C.S. Lewis. And this is actually a funny story. I looked this up and everybody attributes this to C.S. Lewis. They say it's in the screw tape letters. It's not. Actually, Zig Ziglar wrote it. I can't believe I'm quoting Zig Ziglar, but here we go. Um, <laughs> Zig Ziglar tells a story that's very screw tape letter-ish, where you have a number of junior varsity demons talking to Satan and about their plans to trick everybody. And Ziglar says in this little allegory story that one of the Demon says something like, you know, let's convince them there's no heaven. He's like, oh, no, they all know there's a heaven. Everybody's heart is aiming for heaven, even though they're not going there. They're all trying to get heaven on earth. They know there's a heaven. And then one of the demons says something like, well, let's convince them there's no hell. I know. We're all thinking about John Lennon and uh, imagine. Imagine there's no hell. And uh, Satan says, oh, no, Jesus talked far too much about the reality of hell. And then one of the junior varsity demons says, I've got the perfect plan. He said, let's tell them there's plenty of time. There's no rush. There's no hurry. Soul, you've got many years. Notice what he says. Verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have plenty of goods laid up for many years. Wow. You know, there's a reason why the Bible says don't boast about tomorrow for you don't know what a day may bring. There's a reason why James says don't go to such and such a city, buy, sell, trade, and say we're going to do this, but rather say if the Lord wills, we will live. We will live. You will not even live if God doesn't let you live. You know, this man, he is presumptuous. Riken again says he assumed that he would live indefinitely. This explains why he decided to make a capital investment in additional storage for his non-durable assets. He decided, I'm good. Now, you know, you might be sitting there thinking, well, you know, I may not live forever, but, but my kids will at least get it. They'll at least get my possessions. You know, that's actually what... The ungodly say in Psalm 49, they name their lands after them, the psalmist says, they think that they'll remain forever in their family. That that's, that's a foolish thought. That's an absolutely, usually, by the way, one generation squanders everything you work for, so 
Just prepare yourself for that. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, human history plays that out. The Bible plays it out. The prodigal son does it. <laughs> so there's no, there's, no, there's, no, there's no loophole here. There's no loophole. We're either living for ourselves and we're treasuring possessions or we're treasuring Christ. That's it. That's it. Now, notice, and this is, this is really awesome. Sinclair Ferguson says, while this man was drawing blueprints for new barns, God was drawing up his obituary notice. He's over there doing his business, working around, going to get new barns. I got all this. I got to get this. I got to get that. Got to build that. Get the blueprints for this. Where will I lay it out? I think I'll put it over here. And notice what Jesus says. That man's been talking to himself the whole time. Soul, you're good. You're doing this. My, my goods, my possessions, my years, eat, drink, marry, love yourself. And, uh, and God now interjects. He's the narrator. And he, and he says, full. Isn't it interesting? This man has addressed himself the whole time with improper views of himself. And now God comes with the way this man should be addressed, and he says, fool. Now, a fool is not just somebody who doesn't have all their intellectual faculties working. A fool is somebody who doesn't agree with God about what God values and what is most important to God. A fool is someone that does not value what is most important to God. Tim Keller says there's a spiritual aspect here. In the Bible, it's not the absence of mental equipment. Plenty of people have tons. This man had tons of mental equipment. It's not the absence of mental equipment. It is the presence of an outlook that hates God's definition of reality. A fool has a mental outlook that hates God's definition of reality. Now, before we look at the very end of this, I'm going to tell you how this doesn't end. All right? Everybody ready? You can write this down. Jesus doesn't tell this man to give away all his riches. He doesn't tell him to get rid of them. Now, maybe you're like, really? When he tells the rich young ruler to give away everything, that's because he was using the law to show the rich young ruler what his unregenerate, idolatrous heart loved, was his possessions. Um, Augustine says this, and I need you to listen carefully. Jesus does not tell this man to give away, with his, we- to give away his wealth, but to transfer it. He's teaching this man to transfer his wealth. There are many people, Augustine says, who, has re- who have refused to do this and have been very sorry indeed that they didn't obey. There have been many people that did not transfer their wealth to heavenly storehouses who have been very sorry once they've died. Augustine says, when they not only lost their wealth, but on account of it themselves too. They've been very sorry when they've not only lost their wealth, but themselves too. Now, I have told you, I have told you that 
This is a convicting parable for me, as it should be for you, whoever you are, to some degree. Um, The sting in Jesus' stories don't just hit a few. They're meant to hit all of us at different times and to different degrees. And what, what are we to do if by God's grace we honestly look at how we've spent our money, our possessions, and we say, I have been living for self far too much. Um, Well, Jesus doesn't say, go give away your money and then believe in God. So, you know, it's always funny. Sometimes I've preached sermons and then, someone's met me at the door or later and said, I really loved how you said this, and it was like the complete opposite thing of what I said. So let me, let, me, let me just make this as clear as I can. Jesus is not telling you, okay, start going and giving all your money to charities and then trust in God. It's not what he's saying. Notice what he says. He says in verse 21 about this rich man, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What Jesus wants for you to do is to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you. Christ, I need you. Lord Jesus, I need you to be the treasure of my soul. I need you to be the thing I prize more than anything. You know, Charles Spurgeon says something along the lines, and I've heard this over the years in numerous uh, different messages, but Spurgeon says, you'll know when you've treasured Christ when you don't treasure anything else as much as you treasure him. You know that you treasure Jesus when you don't treasure anything else as much as you treasure him. Jesus is standing there. Isn't this ironic? The one who gives the infinite inheritance, the one who is the possessor of the eternal inheritance, the one who has said to his people, if you'll trust me, if you'll rest in me, if you'll believe in me, if you will will follow me, I will give you joy inexpressible and full of glory now. I will give you riches for all eternity. I've got barns you can't even imagine in glory, but it's only for those that will trust me. And he's right there. And here's a man that doesn't see who he is saying, tell my brother to give me half of the inheritance. When I see that I haven't been living with a heart that is free from the love of money, when I recognize that I have been too selfish, too self-indulgent, too anxious over possessions, too presumptuous about my own lifespan and, and my own life, There is one thing for me to do, and that is to flee to the foot of the cross, to confess my sin, and to beg the Lord Jesus to cleanse my heart of covetousness. That's the only thing we can do. You do that, or we continue on with hearts that are far too indulgent and selfish and proud. And here's what happens. When we come to Christ, we become generous, just like Joe Estes. You know, I never asked Joe Estes for a single thing. Never hinted at it, never fished at it. I didn't even know what humble brag was back then. 
There's not, there's no, I wasn't, I didn't know what passive aggressive was. There's no fishing. He gave generously because he had found a better treasure. He had found that Christ was the treasure his heart had really been longing for. And that all that money was just wasted. He said to me, I'll tell you this again, I've wasted my life making money. That's what he said. That's the truth. He wasted his life just making riches. Now, I've confessed my weakness to you, and it's time for you to confess your sin of covetousness and greed wherever you may find it in your heart to the Lord Jesus, and together we've got to go to him, and we've got to believe that what he does at the cross will heal our hearts and will then make us generous and will make us fruitful. I want to tell you one more story. There is a... um, There is a theological book publisher called The Banner of Truth. Some of you have read Banner of Truth books. Some of you have a lot of Banner of Truth books. Other of you maybe haven't. Um, The Banner of Truth was started in 1955 by a very wealthy businessman who, like Joe Estes, had spent all of his money uh, on himself. Filthy rich. And at the end of his life, he was converted. And he said, I want to do something for the Lord. And so he took the better part of his inheritance and he created the banner of truth trust. And he put that money in there to make sure that reformed and Puritan works and theological resources would go out and would supply pulpits through the ministry of faithful men. And to this day, I don't think there's any way to estimate the influence that the banner of truth has had on the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. I don't think anyone could ever measure it, but in glory, it will be enormous. And you know what the guy that started that trust did? He built tons of barns in heaven. That's what he did. And all that grain is there. It's all there. And people are going to be there who were saved through the ministry of the men who have been supplied with education from those books. Think about that. For eternity, souls filling the barns of glory because he gave generously. And you can't take a single thing with you, and neither can I. You're not going to take a single thing with you. Why would we not? Why would we not treasure Christ above everything? And why would we not store up for ourselves treasures in heaven? Why would we not do that? It's the best investment you get one life. You don't even know, know if you're going to be here tomorrow. God could be scripting your obituary and mine right now. You don't know. And to think you do, God is saying to you, fool. Notice what Jesus said to that man's soul. That man said soul, and God said fool. This night your soul is required of you. Now, I want to encourage you as we close here, and I want to say... God wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to have enormous fruit and glory. He tells us that. Jesus said, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And the way we've got to do that is by treasuring the Lord Jesus above all the possessions. And we treasure him when we see that he's done everything for us. Jesus gave everything. He poured his life out. He gave his soul unto death. He took the wrath of God. He went through hell on the cross so that you could go to glory forever. Why would we hold on to possessions? Why? Why? When we treasure him, 
he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come inherit everything that I've prepared for you in glory. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, these are weighty truths and ones that I need and ones that your people here need this morning. Our Father, would you please have mercy on us where we have loved money and possessions more than your Son? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us your spirit this morning, that we might again see that you are the treasure in the field, that you are the pearl of great price, that you have reserved for us an inheritance undefiled and that does not fade away, kept in heaven for us who are being kept by God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Lord Jesus, would you please free our hearts to love you and to trust you, and then by way of fruit that we would be generous and that we would sow bountifully in caring for your church and for the needs of the poor and the needy. Our God, please be merciful to us. Please help us to make the best use of the remainder of the days that you give us here on earth in these ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.